On this episode of AvTalk, we talk with Joseph Tarschmidt, a regional airline pilot for a major U.S. carrier, plus more max headaches for Boeing and the airlines, and a high-fly A340 makes a mess in Orlando. Hello and welcome to episode 63 of AvTalk. I am Ian Pechnik here as always with Jason Rabinowitz and hello once again, Ian. Hello, Jason. How are you today? I am. I'm well. How are you? I, I'm doing well. I'm doing very well. It is perhaps the nicest day of the entire year. And I have foregone that to to sit in a darkened room and speak with you about airplanes. Oh, well, meanwhile, on the East Coast, where things actually happen, the weather is absolutely disgusting today. and has been all week. Uh, let's see. Newark has five-hour, four-minute delays. JFK has five-minute, four-hour delays. LaGuardia has one-hour, 44-minute delays. Uh, that's not so bad. But some of the weather we've had with these pop-up afternoon storms recently have just been phenomenally bad. If you follow Ethan Clapper on Twitter, he was following closely the, the weather in Boston, and they had quite a meter earlier today where the wind was 180 at 18 knots, gusting to 64 knots, and the remarks say, lightning all quadrants, occasional lightning in cloud, cloud to cloud, cloud to ground, and pretty much everywhere in between. There was microbursts, wind gusts of 68 miles an hour, all, all sorts of fun on the East Coast today. In other words, maybe not a good day for flying. Yeah, try not to fly today. Try not try your best not to fly yeah. today. But if you can't help it, bring patience. Always. Always bring patience when flying. Pack a lot, a lot of, of it I today. I, people say not to check a bag, but I, I just need an extra bag to, for, my, for all of my patients. Yeah. Or something like that. I don't know. Or something. Or, you know, find the nearest hotel uh, – or not hotel, air, airport uh, rest stop, we'll call it. I think you mean and, bar. Uh, whatever floats your boat. So the past two weeks have – been a period of time in which I kept looking for the good news about the 737 MAX. Did you find any? I kept looking and I have to say I found none. Oh, well, what did we find? We can break that down because if you're looking for bad, we found a lot of that. We found plenty of it. We can break this into a number of different ca I, I feel like I'm back writing like essays for school where you have to like, you know, say point one, point two, point three, and then for number one you have to have an A and a B. So a couple things. Some journalism was performed that looked into the relationship between Boeing and the FAA and the certification of the aircraft. A few airlines have released their earnings for the second quarter of the year and within that managed to reconfigure their schedules further and that's affected some routes and things like that. In Ryanair's case, it's affected more than routes and they've kind of dealt with that. And then Boeing's earning call raised the prospect of a halt of 737 MAX production, which I, I think is a good place to start as any, breaking down what's happening. So let's start with that. That is, as John Astrower called it, is kind of the nuclear option. That, that's not something that Boeing ever wants to do, of course, because stopping the line has dramatic impacts on both its own bottom line, its production, and also every supplier that supplies Boeing with all the the parts and, and let's say the fuselage, the wings, the engines to build the 737 MAX. And that would kind of be a bit of a disaster for them to have to do. 
Yeah, it's absolutely the option of last resort. And I think the Boeing CEO, Dennis Muhlenberg, made that clear in the discussion. But the fact that that was raised, I, I think, is the context that it was raised in is, is that if the MAX is not back, is not recertified by the new year, that it's a possibility. That becomes that becomes a, a possibility, right. I, I, but not before then. I, guess. I, I don't think anyone, including us, imagined back in March or April that this would possibly be extending through into 2020 and, and beyond into who knows. But Boeing also did in their quarterly report also reveal that once the the new software is finished and out there and ready to go and the airplane is certified again, it's not like they can just get their their fleet of like hundreds of airplanes at this time that they've produced since the grounding up in the air and delivered. It's going to take a matter of months and months up to possibly more than a year to get through the backlog of aircraft that have been produced but are now sitting idle and can't be delivered. Yeah, if it wasn't already clear, it's it's becoming even more clear in the last few weeks about how much of a process it's going to be to get all of these aircraft back in the air. Aside from from any, you know, commercial aspects of it. It just seems like there's we keep adding layers to the process to just get the aircraft back in the air from a mechanical flying standpoint. Yeah, it's definitely not the kind of thing where you plug in a USB drive and and update the software and you're ready to go. There's a lot of work that has to be done. And really, there's still not even a vague timeline and and when we might see the Max recertified. No. And so there's been a couple stories out this week that I I think are worth touching on. And, And one is that the FAA is really kind of pushing for a united front as far as regulators are concerned. And I think everyone is pushing for this as well as far as Boeing is concerned. And we've talked a little bit about this before as far as Airbus is concerned. Because changing the rules as far as who certifies airplanes and and how they get certified and when they get certified and is there a different set of criteria for the FAA than there is for ESA? Is there are we going down to the national level in certain places? You know, what does that look like? If everyone is on board with okay, the FAA has recertified the aircraft, and we're all going to do this together, that seems like the best way to go about it, right? As far as a, as getting the airplane back in the air is concerned. Correct me if I'm wrong, but right now it's basically the FAA and EASA they certify an aircraft, and it's pretty much good globally at this point. If you upset that balance and EASA does its own thing from FAA, which is already common today, but if individual countries get down into it, we can see situations like we're seeing right now with ferry flights for the MAX, where if they want to fly a grounded MAX on a ferry flight from Italy to the Netherlands or up to, let's say, Iceland, whatever, hypothetically, they can't fly over Germany because Germany won't allow the MAX to fly over their airspace. That could potentially become the new norm for new aircraft where the FAA has certified it and France has certified it, but the UK has not. So that new aircraft would not be able to fly over the UK. And that's a kind of a scary thought. Yeah. And, and, and the piecemeal aspect of it is is one of the more challenging 
parts of the whole recertification puzzle or, or just continued certification? I mean, what happens if something gets recertified, but the FA is really pushing against, you know, some, pushing for something and, and EAS is pushing against it, you know, that becomes a very strange dynamic that I don't think we've we've seen before. So hopefully once everything's kind of submitted and begins testing, becomes a, a united regulators front. Because I, I think as far as, you know, getting the airplane back into commercial service, that would, I don't even know how far that would extend things into the future. So I guess only time will tell and we'll wait and, and we will see. But there's definitely been some almost required reading from the New York Times and Wall Street Journal in the last couple of days about the process between the, the FAA and Boeing that led up to the current crisis we're in where the FAA, for reasons you'll have to read into, handed over far more control into the certification process than probably ever should have been and far too many people didn't understand what it is they were doing. And that's how we kind of ended up with the MCAS system. And, and we all know how that ended up. Yeah. And that was the big New York Times piece. And then the Wall Street Journal piece kind of delved into when the FAA and Boeing kind of realized that this was a problem. And it was certainly before the Ethiopian 302 crash. And so if you remember when the Ethiopian 302 crash happened and, and the MAX was grounded, we were talking in terms of weeks and a month, not months to the following year as far as when the aircraft would be back in there because we all assumed that this was something that was easily fixable within a matter of weeks and something that could be recertified rather quickly based on what we knew then. Since then, it seems like it's gotten deeper and deeper and deeper into, okay, so so this didn't do exactly what we thought it did. This did something a little bit else. This does more, you know, that Max is more powerful than was originally known. So that has to be compensated for. And we talked about this maybe, you know, a month or two ago, but at what point does does new information stop coming out and we start getting resolution to existing, you know, questions. Yeah. Again, we will have to wait and see, but the news out of Boeing has not really been a reassuring message of we have a, a patch and we're ready to go and here's what we're doing. It's more of just kind of we're working on it. There's no timeline like we already mentioned, but we'll just have to, to keep an eye on it. And when we hear something, you'll hear something. And the latest news that we got as far as a, a timeline for, for fix and, and submission came from none other than Michael O'Leary of Ryanair because he had some he always has colorful words but he told Boeing to get their act together well, uh, that's putting act it was nicely. not a word but act was not the word he used i know that we do have some some younger listeners so i'll leave it at that but he regarding the the max because he was told or says he was told that october is now a target out from september so Ryanair because of this and because of other economic pressures, but but deferring the renewal of its fleet, which Ryanair prides itself on basically taking delivery of a plane every 30 seconds or so. Give or um, take. Be, yeah, give or take. Because of the, the MAX issues, they're looking at closing pilot bases and letting pilots and flight attendants go and, and things like that. So they're dealing, you know, the, this is starting to really affect as we kind of 
gone on and on. And we start to see airlines are keeping older aircraft around because because they want to, but because they have to. Southwest is saying that Newark is being their service to Newark is being ended because, at least in large part, because of the 737 MAX being out of service. And was it Southwest and Air Canada have now extended their out of service timeline through into January? Yeah, I believe United uh, and American are still November 3rd of this year, but both Southwest and Air Canada have fully gone into 2020. Yeah. So, I mean, we keep asking at what point will things turn around? And I think it was John Astro this week said, you know, we're, we're halfway through this. Yeah. You know, and that's kind of a scary thought in, in many respects. So, yeah. And airlines are still, they're still scrambling to cope with this. American is extending the life of some of its 757s and A320s, which were due to be retired. I guess not anymore, but they will not be extending the life of the MD-80s because those – no more extending those. They're done. Um, <laughs> they, they've been extended and extended. Yeah, no, no, no more of that. And I believe United has suspended all of its fleet retirements for the remainder of this year, which would be, I believe, again, uh, 757s and some other smaller narrow-body aircraft. So it, it's really not only impacting – aircraft coming into the fleet, but aircraft exiting the fleet, that they can't retire these older aircraft that they wanted to. And now they have to sink money into doing possibly heavy checks to keep them in the fleet, which is not an inexpensive matter. No, no. And we talked about, I think, last episode of the episode before that, United's bringing in additional 737-700s from an undetermined or unannounced, I think they probably know where they're coming from, but unannounced source so all sorts of interesting things as far as fleet management go. I'm, I'm sure airline fleet managers are- They don't know what to do. <laughs> less than enthused about this. So we'll, we'll go from there, I guess, and and see what we see in, in two weeks, where, where airlines are at, where Boeing's at, and eventually we'll get some clarity on this, I guess. I guess so, because there is zero clarity right now. And as a double whammy, it doesn't help that Airbus is not delivering the 320 Neo series- very well or at all in some cases. Airlines, I know like uh, Delta and JetBlue and American have had significant delays uh, getting their A320neos or A321neos delivered. Um, JetBlue specifically, they're not impacted by the 73 Max, but they are impacted by the the uh, neos not coming off the delivery line fast enough to the order of like i think they were supposed to take 12 this year they're only getting something like six or even fewer my my numbers may be off but the sentiment is is there so nobody is really out of the woods right now in in terms of narrow bodies yeah so it, it's not a good time to be taking narrow body aircraft it's a good time to be emirates i guess <laughs> one of the few airlines that doesn't have to care about that Wait, yeah, no, yeah. wait, they kind of own uh, Fly Dubai, which is taking the max. So yeah. ah, not even Emirates gets out of this. Uh, yeah, it's not a good time. But maybe there's a corner turning somewhere. If we turn a corner, we'll try our best to find it. So something happened a couple weeks ago that, that kind of didn't get a whole lot of play in in the media. Which is surprising and, considering Which what is happened. surprising. And then I read about it and I went, Wait, what? Huh. Yeah. Things that make you go, huh? Yeah, so this is a strange one. So if you're at all familiar with Norwegian's operation, you know that most of their operation isn't even their operation. It's uh, a lot of chartered out aircraft, high fly, Euro-Atlantic, uh, privileged style, whatever 
7.6 or 7.5s they can find that can hop over the Atlantic. But one aircraft, a high-fly A340-300 from Orlando, I don't know where it was going, somewhere in Europe. It was going to Gatwick. Yeah, going to Gatwick. It had a technical issue and had to return to Orlando. Sucks, but it, it happens. What are you going to do? It happens to every airline. So the A340 is a type of aircraft that can fortunately dump fuel to reduce landing weight so they can return to the originating airport without having to fly around in circles for hours and hours. They can just dump fuel and, and not land heavy. But they kind of didn't stop dumping fuel. And that includes apparently through the landing and, and taxiing all the way down into like the gate at MCO that they just kept dumping fuel on the ground. I've never heard of such a thing like that. I haven't either. And I was kind of and that kind of really shocked. Blown away by this. That could continue to happen. Right. So we, we don't know why it happened. We, it's not going to be intentional. This is not the kind of thing any flight crew would ever do because dumping fuel on the ground is insanely dangerous since uh, it's literally just fuel dumping out of the wing onto the ground and brakes are hot after an aircraft lands and fuel plus hot brakes equals plane go boom, which is bad. Thankfully, that did not happen. If anyone has seen Die Hard 2. Exactly. You know. Exactly. Plane boom bad. Because that's a documentary, right? right. Definitely. Yeah, that's uh, okay. at the – you got to go to the memorial out at Dulles to see the uh, <laughs> Die Hard 2 memorial. But thankfully, that did not happen. But there are pictures of fuel just streaming out of the wing and apparently fuel is corrosive and has done a substantial amount of damage to the runways, the recently redone runways and taxiways. Yeah, that's the thing. It's it's all brand new pavement. Right. The, the asphalt on the runway is, I mean, not brand new, but very recently done. So now they're, they're trying to find out how much of it they have to replace and how long that's going to take. And I, I can only imagine, I mean, and this was initially reported as a Norwegian flight because it was operating on behalf of Norwegian. But this was and not so, Norwegian. This was this, this high was not fly. Norwegian. This was high fly. And so I just can only imagine what the remediation costs are going to be I, for this. Gonna, I mean, that's what insurance is for. But I'm just shocked that this could happen either – it, there's no way it's intentional. So that that's just out of the – well, right, right. No, yeah. It, this this was not, you know, the pilots going, let's, you know, dump fuel. No, that, that's not no, what this was. This was how does something it either. continue to happen on the ground without the flight crew knowing, which is concerning, that the 340 could be dumping fuel? A, why is it able to dump fuel on the ground at all? And B, that the, the flight crew wasn't aware because if they were aware, they did not relay that information to the teams on the ground because they – just kind of spotted it and saw that it went all the way to their to their gate out there to their ramp. They were expecting a little bit of fuel, but this thing was just dragging fuel all behind it. There have been rumors that maybe the fuel dump valve got stuck open, which is another concern all of its own. When you're in the air and dumping fuel, you want to be able to stop dumping fuel. But lots of questions. I don't know if this is the kind of thing the NTSB gets involved in, but I don't know. So I'm sure somebody's investigating, whether it's the NTSB or the FAA. Or the insurance I'm company. Sure, well, I'm sure the insurance company really wants to know what happened. But I'm sure someone's investigating and, and we'll, you know, we'll, we'll figure that one out. But hopefully there's a report issued because I, I find it fascinating that this could happen. And, and I would love to know exactly how it happened and, and what they end up doing, I think, will also be 
you know, just as interesting to know. Let us take a quick break, and then we'll come back and talk with Joseph Toshmit, who is a regional airline pilot uh, in the United States. It'll be our first time on AvTalk having someone who uh, who doesn't fly long haul and who doesn't dry uh, cherry trees with a helicopter. So that, that's kind of been our spectrum. So we're going to get something much closer to the middle this time. So uh, stick around. We'll be right back after a quick break. Welcome back. We're now joined by Joseph Toshmit, a regional pilot flying the Embraer E-175 based in LaGuardia. And we are delighted to talk with him. We've talked with long-haul pilots before. We've talked with cargo pilots before. Uh, but we've never spoken with someone doing regional flying. So we're really excited. Joseph, thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, thank you very much. Great to be a part of the podcast today. Joseph, welcome to the podcast. I've wanted to have you on for a long time now since we've known each other for a while now since, well, oddly enough, we ended up growing up in the same kind <laughs> of area. But I guess we connected back in like the NYC aviation days, plane spotting up by JFK, right? Yeah, that's, that sounds about right. It's been it's been quite a while and I've facilitated a lot of my aviation relationships to, to Twitter as well. It's been a great resource to meet other people who are interested in not just, you know, the flying, but also all aspects of aviation. So it's, it's been great to meet you both in person now and and, and on Twitter as well. Awesome. So like Ian said, we've talked to people in all different aspects of the aviation industry, whether it's freight or long haul flying, uh, but regional flying is kind of a whole other beast. It's not like you do one to two flights in a day or even a week, and then you have a couple days downtime and then you head home. Regional pilots are all over the place multiple times per day. You could start your day at your base at LaGuardia, go through Chicago, Knoxville, end up in Miami somehow, and then hopefully back to New York unless too many ground stops get in your way along the way and strand you back in Knoxville. But <laughs> that's exactly right. It, there's a lot of variety with it. So, you, you know, depending on the trip, you can, like you say, get all over or you could go right back home hopefully in a day. So. <laughs> So what was your path to get to where you are today? Actually, tell us exactly what your position is today. Sure. And yeah. then just a little bit of the background of how you got to where you are. Absolutely. So for the past uh, two, let's call it two and a half years, I was flying as a first officer in the Embraer 170, 175 series at my company. And just recently in April, I went over to uh, Captain Upgrade class, which is a uh, about a month and a half long process that transitions you over to the captain role. I finished all of that training in June. And so since Congratulations. then, Congratulations. Yeah, thank you very yeah, much. Thank you. Thank you very much. So so since June I've been I've been flying now as a captain at my company which has really been a blast. It's the same airplane, it's the same operations, it's just moving from the right seat over to the left seat. So that's that's what I've been doing and it's uh, been a really really great time. So where were you before your current employer? Because obviously you didn't just start one day flying E-175s at a LaGuardia. Where did you start off? Sure. So before I worked at my uh, my current company, I was working at a company that's based up in uh, Connecticut called Tradewind, actually. So I was I was flying a Pilatus PC-12 uh, aircraft there. That's a single engine turboprop, uh, usually fitted for around uh, nine seats. And so that was really a lot of fun. Uh, it, was a, it was a great opportunity for me to, to build some experience and to hone my skills as a pilot. I got hired there back in 2015. And at that point, I transitioned down into the Caribbean, actually flying. I was based down in San Juan, Puerto Rico. 
I was flying uh, inter-island there. So mostly out of San Juan over to islands like St. Bart's. That was the most popular route. Antigua, Nevis, Anguilla, sometimes St. Thomas and St. John. So that sort of thing. So that was a good experience. It was the first passenger service that I had been employed uh, for. You know, it was a really hands-on operation. So it wasn't just that we were flying the airplane, but we were also talking and briefing the passengers about the entire flight. Safety concerns, uh, that sort of thing, you know, trying to help with any connections that we could with other aircraft and or car services and that sort of thing. Catering, we were doing everything. So it was a really, really nice uh, way to transition into the flying passenger world by getting to see how all of the operations kind of come together, obviously on a much smaller scale. So that was great. And, and, and so I spent about five months down the Caribbean doing that uh, during the winter season. And then uh, for the spring season, I actually came back up to the Northeast and I was flying uh, based out of White Plains, New York, doing similar island flying actually out of, uh, out of White Plains over to Nantucket, mostly Martha's Vineyard and Boston area. And that was anywhere from, let's call it six to 10 flights in a day, which made it extremely busy. It's the same thing in the Caribbean because there were such uh, sh- short routes. It was an extremely busy day, but it was a, it was a good day of flying. Good way to get your hours up. Yeah, exactly. And that was the primary goal at the time, you know, just to get your flight time up, to get your experience up and to make some money doing it as well. What was the transition like going from a a single engine turboprop to a twin engine jet aircraft like the E-175? What did that training process look like? That's a a great question. So my initial foundation is what prepped me for for all of my professional flying. And I'll talk about that in a minute, I guess. But going from the Pilatus to the the Embraer jet was actually uh, pretty simple in my opinion. Uh, the Pilatus, we actually had two models of the aircraft where I, where I was working before. They called it the Legacy version and then, of course, the, the NG version, the, the newer generation. Uh, the Legacy version was a lot more simple in regards to the avionics and the flight deck, a lot more, well, I should say, a lot less glass. So it's a, it's a lot more analog-styled uh, instruments. So that was a good experience in the sense that I could focus on actually flying my first heavy airplane or heavy, you know, in regards to what I was flying before, uh, which was just very light aircraft you know, uh, 2,400 pounds or less. So the, the Pilatus was above 10,000 pounds. So it was quite quite a bit of a step. And that was a good transition to get into that sort of flying. Now to get from the Pilatus over to the Embraer, it was, it was, it was pretty simple in terms of the fact that, you know, once you're flying and you're comfortable flying an airplane, they all pretty much fly the same in one way or another. You know, the engineers do a great job of being able to manipulate the flight controls so that even though you're flying a 86,000-pound airplane now versus a 2,400-pound airplane, it, it, you don't need a considerable amount of extra force uh, to operate it. So that and a good understanding of the systems in the Pilatus and how they work, uh, the pressurization systems. That was my first turbine aircraft. You know, So I was going from, from mostly piston-powered airplanes now to a turbine uh, aircraft. So I, I had a decent understanding of how all that worked by the time I got to my current employer and was flying the Embraer. So that was a great transition and a good middle step from my previous experience at the time. So is there anything you particularly like or particularly don't like about the E-175? Yeah. So I there are many, many, many things to like about the Embraer 175. I think it's a fantastic airplane. Granted, it is the only jet I've ever flown. So that, <laughs> that should come with an asterisk, I guess. But with that being said, I think they got a lot right. And I've, I obviously have a lot of friends in the industry that fly various equipment, both in the regionals and also at, at Mainline as well. And the Embraer engineers, in combination with you know other companies that helped make the aircraft, even down to the avionics, everything is really, really, really well done. 
and it's a dream to fly. In terms of what I don't like, it's very, very, very nitpicky things, things that are relative luxuries, especially as your first airliner to be flying. To get, I guess, somewhat technical, I would say about 40% of our fleet have auto brake systems, which is a great additional layer of safety as an option. And so the, the first couple of aircraft didn't have them. Uh, so we've got a mix of them. The, the newer aircraft that we're having de- delivered do have the auto brake systems. And the way it works is that, you know, once you go ahead and touch down on the ground, the computer system is smart enough to apply a brake application. The problem is whenever you're transitioning to either turning them off or applying brake pressure yourself, there is a slight jolting force that you can feel both in, as a passenger and, and in the cockpit. So it almost feels like somebody let off the brakes really quick and then you're you're now applying them again. And there's really, as far as I've, I've found and talked with other Embraer pilots, there's no way to get around that. So that is one thing that is, you know, is something that you have to deal with when you're using the odd brake system. Again, really nitpicky because uh, some some other regional airliners don't have auto brakes at all. And the other thing I would say is the thrust levers in terms of reverse thrust. Uh, sometimes it can be a little bit tricky to get the system to realize that it's on the ground because there are uh, air, air ground sensors. So if you happen to have a really good landing and it's nice and soft and you're trying to get the reverse thrust out and apply the reverse thrust, it could, it could be a little bit challenging. Sometimes you're fighting, you know, there's there's two thrust levers. So you have to actually use your, your index fingers to pull on a plastic metal switch that, that comes up towards the rest of your palm. And then you have to, once that's activated and, and unlocked, and then you can bring the, the thrust levers back into the reverse position, they're spring-loaded. So sometimes you can only get one out. Other times it's a little bit clumsy and you're trying to, to help slow down the air, airplane. It can be a little bit tricky. So if you really grease the landing, I guess the weight on wheels sensors just don't quite pick it up. Yeah, sometimes that the system is kind of thinking. It's like, well, are we are we really on the ground? I, I think that we're on landing the was so. too good. Yeah, I'm I, suspicious. Yeah, when you when you really plant it on, it's no problem. So, <laughs> but yeah, like I said, really really nitpicky stuff. So I, it, overall, I'm I'm very satisfied with the airplane. It's an incredibly safe airplane. There's so many protections that were uh, introduced and designed to help pilots like myself operated in the safest way possible. So I'm, I'm really grateful for Embraer and their work on the airplane and for all of the other companies uh, that have helped design it. Yeah, that's great. So Jason alluded to this earlier when we first started talking, but I wanted to have you kind of walk us through, I don't want to say a typical week because I, I know enough to know that there's not really a typical week. Sure. <laughs> um, but just you know, walk us through any week to give us an idea of kind of the difference between, like Jason said, you know, flying a couple of days and then being off a couple of days and things like sure. that versus the kind of flying that you're doing or the kind of schedule that you're maintaining. Absolutely. So one of the luxuries that I have at the company that I currently work for is the abundance of different lengths of trips. So for example, right now I I live in New York and I have the luxury of being able to use ground transportation to get to and from work. And so that is a luxury in the sense that I don't have to take an airplane, for example, to get to work, which is what I was doing for a few years back when I lived in Jacksonville, Florida. I'm going to remember that you just called the F train a luxury. Yeah, I know. It's, it can be challenging at times to help myself remember that because you know, it has its own problems, clearly. But in terms of that sense, so for example, I, I prefer to do, I think my, my ideal length of trip at, at my current company is, is a three-day trip. So for example, let's call it a Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday sequence. And there's two types of, of ways you can be scheduled. You're either on reserve, which is when you have very little say over what you're doing, you're just available and the company will, will, will fill your schedule with whatever they need covered, or you're considered what's known as a line holder. So for the simplicity of it all, I'll just call myself a line holder right now, just so that we could talk about the trips a little bit easier. So let's say on a Monday through Friday sequence, I want to work just three days of that sequence, Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday. So that's a three-day trip. 
So in those three days, let's say I have a 7 o'clock a.m. Uh, report time on Monday morning and show up at LaGuardia, and we'll most of our trips start with a turn. So we'll go from, let's say, LaGuardia down to Raleigh-Durham, you know, turn the airplane in 30 or 40 minutes, and then take that same airplane right back to LaGuardia and go from there. And that's just day, the, the first turn of the trip. And then normally we'll sit for about an hour, wait, you know, potentially have a plane swap. So that airplane will go and do something else while myself, my first officer, and my two flight attendants will stay as a crew and either grab breakfast quickly and then get ready for the next airplane to take down to typically our, our layover or overnight leg. So at that point, let's say we'll go from LaGuardia to Detroit. So we'll take it over to Detroit and then we'll have anywhere from 10 hours, which is the minimum legal period of, of rest between duty periods, all the way up to sometimes we have 26, 30, 32-hour layovers. So it could be a, a wide range of things. For, so for the purpose of this three-day trip, let's call it a 15-hour layover, somewhere in the middle. We get in the, you know, mid-afternoon on Monday. Generally speaking, I'm, I'm ready for a nap at this point. You know, so I'll, I'll try to take a short one and then you know, not take too long of a nap, but otherwise I'm, I'm kind of messed up for my sleep the next day. And then sometimes we'll grab dinner as a crew or, or sometimes we don't. It really depends. The next day we might do Detroit over to, let's call it, back to New York. And then we could do New York to, to Philly and then Philly to another layover. So it's the way that the regional flying is, is that it's always you start off in your base and then you're always flying either to to a hub or a spoke. It's always it's always hub and spoke. So LaGuardia happens to be a hub for American flying. So a lot of that will go in and out of LaGuardia, in and out of Philadelphia, in and out of Miami. And we usually focus on, on those three hubs on the American side for, for our operation. Delta, we're in and out of LaGuardia, occasionally JFK, a lot of Detroit now. We just started Atlanta. So, uh, so it really depends on, on, on which type of flying we're doing. And so generally speaking, a trip is just one code share partner that we have, one regional affiliate, should I say, that, that we're going to do. So, so for the three days, generally speaking, you'll do all Delta flying, all American flying, or all United flying. They won't go, okay, one flight is going to be Delta, the next one's United. So that keeps it a little bit simpler in terms of trying to to figure out what you're doing. So <laughs> that's something I've always wondered about is these most of these regional airlines in the US, they're not just flying for one airline except for the regionals that are owned right. by an airline exactly. like um Envoy belongs to American Endeavor belongs to Delta. The the others out there, Mesa, Republic, a couple Sky of the others, yeah, Sky yeah. West, exactly. They yeah. operate pretty much for the three big air, U.S. airlines indiscriminately. Yep. So you you're saying you basically on any given trip you operate for one airline. It's not yeah. like you'll fly Laguardia to Detroit as Delta, right. and then swap hats, and then suddenly fly to Houston <laughs> as United, right. right? And the only time that would ever ever happen is if you are for some reason reassigned or or something really abnormal and an and irregular operation is happening and the company needs you to fly a particular leg to get to to recover a trip of some sort but generally speaking at that point if you're just doing the one or two legs to, to get the trip back to its its uh to it to base or whatever let's say let's say a pilot got really sick somewhere and they needed to call off unexpectedly then they might re reassign a pilot off of his or her trip to go recover and then you you eventually rejoin your, your original trip uh, so, okay. but yeah, but now, the trips are always scheduled originally as just one regional affiliate, you know, just one airline. 
Now, be honest. When doing your pre-flight announcements to the passengers, have you ever announced the wrong airline? So on my pre-flight announcements, I my honest answer is that I never, ever actually mentioned the affiliate. So I'll always have the flight Interesting. number. Interesting. Yeah, because I've seen, I've seen really, really, really good captains when I was a first officer make that mistake. And it's just a little bit awkward, at, you know, at first, if people are paying attention, it kind of begs the question, like, well, how do you forget who you're flying for, you know? So I got to the point where I just mentioned the flight number, and then I'll let the flight attendants take care of the branding aspect, because they have scripts that they can very easily use, so. <laughs> this question may not be specific to a regional airline. It's really specific to, to any any pilot flying at, for any airline. How do you remember so well your flight number? I, you you have the same call sign no matter what airline you're actually operating for because you're all you're always sure. running for your regional airline. Right. But how do you in your brain cue in to your flight number every single time when ATC calls out to whatever airline four two nine? Like, how do you do that? Well, that's a really great question. And and on the days where you're only doing one flight in a day, which are normally pretty rare at my company. But it's pretty easy. Now, it gets really complicated and hard to, to remember when you're doing two, three, four, sometimes even five flights in a day with all different flight numbers. So we have a, a lot of ways that we can help to remember and to assist us in, in remembering what flight we're operating. So first of all, the, the, the airplane itself has the flight number that you program before you even move the airplane in various methods. It, it will remind you and tell you what flight you're operating. It isn't always in the best way or the easiest way to, to look at when you're when you're doing multiple things. Sometimes you have to you click a few buttons to try to get to that page. So a lot of us will also reference the paperwork that we have. So we get anywhere from 10 to 15 pages of information before every flight that's printed out that we can reference as a crew. And so on the on basically the first four pages of that is the flight number. So we'll circle it, we'll highlight it, we'll, you know, sticky note it somewhere, just some way to remember it. So that's that's a good question though. <laughs> so let's close out with some easy questions for you. What is your favorite airport to operate out of? Uh, my favorite airport to operate out of is JFK. And I think you probably saw that one coming. It's where my entire- I sure did. Yeah, it's it's where my entire my entire passion and love for aviation is, you know, started. So anytime I see that on my schedule, and actually I have- uh, I have a trip coming up next month in the middle of the month where I get to go through uh, JFK. Uh, I really, really enjoy it. And I always just, I, I can look down on, on the spots where I would watch airplanes as a child and, and think, wow, this is actually really neat that I get to do this now for a living. So that's without a doubt the the number one place I love operating in and out of. And I guess a, a quick, easy follow-up to that would be LaGuardia is a close second uh, for the same reasons. So. Interesting. I was going to ask you next, what's your least favorite? And I was expecting <laughs> you to say LaGuardia. Yeah, you know, actually, so from the flying aspect, LaGuardia has a lot of challenges, obviously, um, not just for the passengers, but also for the pilots in, in regards to the available runway lengths, the conditions at the airport, uh, clearances for wingtips, even on taxiways. I'm sure you, both of you and the rest of you listening are familiar that several wing strikes have happened with other airplanes while taxiing around in and around LaGuardia. So there are a lot of challenges that LaGuardia brings to even once you're moving the airplane and of course before you even get to the airport but definitely not my least favorite i really enjoy the hand flying aspect uh, the expressway visual approach to runway 31 is is a pilot favorite because we really have to hone into our skills and and, and operate the airplane in an old school way but still clearly in a safe manner but in terms of operating which airport i don't like operating into that's a tough i don't know if i have a nothing really comes to mind right away I might say the Detroit operation can be sometimes a little bit frustrating from the pilot side, mostly due to the Delta ramp operations over at the uh, the McNamara Terminal on the south end of the A-gates. 
right around uh, alpha one, two, and three, there's about three different RAM frequencies that we have to contact for, oh, I don't know, about 100 feet worth of pavement. So that can get a little bit tricky sometimes trying to figure out exactly who to talk to who just ends up referring us to the next person. And it feels like you're getting the runaround from AT&T or something. So. <laughs> <laughs> and I guess lastly, what's next? What aircraft would you want to transition to? Or do you want to fly the E-175, uh, maybe the E-2 one day forever? That's a great question as well. So the company I'm currently working for, we, we only actually have the Embraer 170, 175 in our fleet. And we have over 190 of them uh, with 100 more on order and then an option for 100 more on top of that. So if I do decide to stay where I currently am employed uh, for the long term, then I'll, I will be flying this airplane for quite a while, which is not a bad thing. It's a great airplane, like I've said. With that being said, I do hope to get on, like a lot of other regional pilots in the United States, I do hope to be able to get onto, unquote, mainline carrier, an airline like United, American, or Delta, or even JetBlue, somewhere that I can be based in New York, uh, hopefully, and fly something a little bit larger, a little bit more comfortable in the cockpit, and most importantly, in terms of the job market, uh, hopefully a more stable career that's not subject to the ebbs and flows of the regional industry as much and then to try to make that translate into a, a better paycheck down the line with better retirement. Uh, so generally speaking, in terms of an actual airplane that I would love to fly, I'm not really too picky. I've always enjoyed the, the 757, 767 uh, series airplane. I think it's always been a neat airplane. I do like that it's kind of loud. I was in a Dreamliner uh, jump seat yesterday, and I couldn't believe how quiet it was. It was actually a little bit disappointing because <laughs> <laughs> you're up front of a 450,000 pound plus airplane, and it's it seems like you're just you're able to whisper to the people next to you. So, <laughs> it is well, maybe of... on the way home you can uh, non rev on a Mad Dog and <laughs> yeah, sit in row 32. There you go, and you could hear it screaming and whining the whole way. So, <laughs> so thank you so much for talking with us. This has been a very enjoyable conversation, and certainly a a new look to the industry that we that we haven't had before. So I, I want to thank you so much for joining us. Joseph Tarschmidt is a captain now. Congratulations. Thank you. With really a appreciate it. <laughs> major regional airline in the United States. And he can be found on the Twitters at String and Rudder. So go check him out there. And Joseph, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you very much. And I, one other thing I wanted to add just quickly is that uh, my, my handle, String and Rudder, comes from, from a book that, that some other pilots may know as Stick and Rudder. It's a play on that. But the string part comes into the fact that I've uh, been playing violin now for 16 years, really passionate about uh, classical music as well. So if anybody ever wants to connect in that regard, uh, let me know. But Ian and Jason, it's really been a pleasure talking to you, and I hope to talk with you again soon, and I wish you all the best. Thanks, buddy. Welcome back. I had fun talking to him because he seems to really love his job. He does. And he's a all-around good stand-up guy, but he he definitely does like flying around the uh, US on his little E-175. The one thing that I wanted to ask him that, that I didn't that occurred to me after now is because he's flying a regional aircraft, you know, you, you kind of get a lot of people like, oh, I've got to fly a regional aircraft and you know and to be fair, I have often been one of those people. However, the E-175 isn't – I mean, it's regional-ish. Regional-ish, yeah. And it's comfort and things like that. And so I, I was going to ask him if he ever gets people like, oh, I actually, I actually like this plane. I, I mean, I like it. I would almost always rather be in an E-175 than a, a 737 on, on a number of flights just because it's a comfortable airplane. 
Yeah, no, I, and that's kind of what I wanted to get into. But it's, you know, we'll, we'll, I guess we'll leave that one for another time. Yep. So a couple things before we go. Air France made some waves this week, but kind of not really. Kind of not really. I mean, these were kind of waves. Kind of waves. Yeah. But they weren't – it's good that they are out there in, in official existence now, but I don't think it was a huge surprise. No. Okay. So let, let's get into it a bit. Air France has a lot of older Airbus narrow bodies. Not surprising. I mean, they're a French aircraft and Airbus are, for the most part, produced in France. But they have a lot of old A318s. Yes, you heard that right. A318 and a lot of A320s and 19s that need to be replaced. So they have placed a order for how many A220 300s was it? 30? I believe so. Okay. Well, I think this was also announced uh, quite a while ago as an MOU or or now this was yeah, this was announced for for 60, so I think it's 30 firm. It's 30 and 30. Yeah, it's 30 firm, 30 options, which they'll I mean, I'm guessing they'll exercise but the A220-300, formerly known as the CS300, will be Air France's official replacement for the smaller, narrow-body mainline aircraft in the suite. And that's, I mean, a very, I mean, when it starts to get replaced, that that's actually going to be quite the, the comfort boost. Yes, that's a nice boon for passengers. I mean, I honestly, I, I'm not surprised that they kept it in the Airbus family, being that they're Air France. But the bulk of their long-haul fleet is actually uh, Boeing aircraft, the 777s. But it, um, I guess this is kind of the – I don't want to say this is the inflection point where this where the A220 becomes like the true A220 or A319 successor, but it kind of sure feels like it. Well, I mean the A319neo is not – it still exists. It exists, but, but why? Kind of. Yeah. It, it, it has no real – future ahead of it and the the A220-300 really feels like that is the spot where it belongs now but Air France ordering a nice chunk of A220s is a really big boon for that that uh, program but that's not all they do oh that's not all if you order A220s now you can also at the same time quietly announce the demise of your entire A380 fleet which that surprised me a little bit in – if only in how soon they plan on doing it. Yeah. So Air France's new CEO, Ben Smith, has not been quiet about wanting to shake up literally everything at Air France. And there had been rumors and speculation that they would refurbish these A380s because they are – they're old on the interior. They are not a nice aircraft on the inside. I mean they're comfortable – in economy, but the business and first class products and the entertainment systems are, are absolutely ancient. But it was always expected that they would refurbish a part of the fleet and retire other in the fleet. But they just straight up said, uh, nope, that's not the case. We will be retiring them all within the next few years. I think all 10 will be gone by 2022. Yeah, so not a whole lot uh, of time between now and and then. I mean, from an you know an airline fleet perspective before they're gone from yeah, twenty twenty two is like tomorrow. It almost feels like, and an airline's fleet planning purposes. 
But of course, they're going to keep sending them to New York just like they always do, unfortunately. <laughs> but it, it did strike us by surprise that they would announce the end of the A380 in their fleet. And they're not alone these days. And I took some time at work when I was definitely working very hard and doing what I was supposed to, to look at the global fleet of A380s, see how many there are out there and what their future plans are. Do you think we should read off the list? Well, I, I think it's a rather interesting list. So I, yes, I think we should. Okay. And I ripped this list off uh, at least the ordering of the airlines from Wikipedia, which is the order in which airlines took delivery on their first A380. So Singapore comes first, who we all know at this point, they've already actually retired five of them. Some of them are being parted out. Some of them are um, up for lease, of which one so far has managed to go to Highfly, but 19 will remain in their fleet. Emirates, on the other hand, has 112 A380s in its fleets with outstanding orders for 11 more. And I can't imagine the A380 being retired from Emirates' fleet anytime soon because that's kind of the backbone of its entire airline and fleet. Qantas has 12 in its fleet, and they actually somewhat recently announced that they will be being refurbished. I think the first refurbished A380 comes out November. So Qantas is very much invested in the A380. Air France, as we just mentioned, all 10 will be retired by 2022. Lufthansa has 14 A380s in its fleet, but a lot of people forget that they have already announced that six of them will be retired by 2023. Korean Air has 10 with no plans announced. China Southern has five, again, no plans. Malaysia has six in its fleet, had previously announced to either sell or lease them, but they decided against that in a fleet restructuring plan, so they'll be retaining those. Uh, Thai Airways also has six in its fleet. British Airways has 12 rather newish A380s with no plans. They seem quite happy. Asiana has six in its fleet. Qatar has 10 in its fleet, but has already announced that it will retire them gradually as they hit 10 years old, so they'll be retired between 2024 and 2028. Etihad has uh, 10 A380s in its fleet and doesn't really announce much of anything these days. Highfly, as <laughs> we mentioned, has one A380 used from Singapore, one of the five it retired. It originally announced it'd take delivery of two A380s, but I kind of don't think that will actually happen because it has enough trouble just um, keeping its 1A380 operational and actually in the air. And last but not least is ANA, who has three currently delivered in its fleet and will almost certainly be the final airline to take its first delivery of a new A380. So a lot of gradual, not we're going to dump them or anything like Air France, but it seems to be more of we'll get rid of them as we have to start paying for maintenance. Right, exactly. Especially noted with Qatar who said, yeah, once they turn 10 years old, we'll start retire retiring them. And that will happen over the course of four years from 2024 to 2028. But Air France rather suddenly is just saying, nope, by the end of 2022, all 10 will be gone. And I'm assuming that coincides with some heavy maintenance. But the spread of the age of Air France's A380s is actually kind of wide since they were the they were an early adopter of the A380, and so some of them, the average fleet age of them is, according to planespotters.net, is 8.6 years old, 
Its oldest is 10 and a half years old, so it's already beyond the age that Qatar will be keeping its A380s. But its newest delivery was in June 2014, and it's only five and a half years old. So it will potentially be retiring some A380s that are only seven or eight years old, which is kind of crazy. I mean, maybe those become a a good candidate for HiFly. Look, HiFly can't keep its one A380 operating. Is it it still in Venezuela? Where is 9H MIP? (laughs) It's it's still operating. Well, it's not in Venezuela. Well, it might be in Venezuela. But it's operating for it was the airline Estelar, so between Madrid and and Venezuela. Yeah, that, um, because they were operating a Highfly A340 that went tech, so they Highfly had to replace it with something, and they used the A380. Yep, it looks like it is operating. Yep, Caracas to Madrid later today. So there you go. The last bit of business is is one that we've been following, and a small update that. Is disappointing but not entirely surprising. The GE 9X engine issues that have been affecting the the 777X program have pushed the first flight of the aircraft into 2020. So we won't get that first flight this year. But they've also said that the delivery and entry into service for airlines will not be impacted somehow. I sure. Why not? Why not? Yeah. 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 I am. Yeah. yeah that pro- I don't know. that program has kind of hit a brick wall recently. They before um, the the Opian crash, they were actually sending out invites for a rollout, and it kind of seemed like a first flight would have happened just weeks after that. But things slowed down quite a bit. Yeah, and and so now we're back in, into 2020 as far as the first flight's concerned. But hopefully, the GE identified the issue. They're they're re-engineering the the part that was causing the issue. So hopefully we get to see the first flight of the 777X sometime early 2020. And are there any new aircraft out there that don't have substantial issues? The Neo has its it oh has had its engine issues and delivery issues. The 787 had its uh issues with its engines as well, which is still going on. The 78 had its battery issues. The GENX has these issues with the uh engines. I guess the only aircraft that really have gone into service quietly has been the little guys, the the E2 and the A220 or back when it was the C-Series when it was introduced have have been quiet. Everything else has kind of been a hot mess. I think that's an accurate description. Yeah. I'll I'll leave it at that. Draw your own conclusions. But it's it's kind of strange that all this new stuff comes out and it's just all fundamentally broken. I didn't mention the Max because we all it's not even worth. We mentioned it. Earlier. Yeah, we mentioned it enough already. But it, it, it's very odd to me that the 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 littlest of the little guys managed to get the most reliable thing out of the factory. Yeah, I mean, we talked about this a little bit, not in in the show, but just when we were having a conversation about you know what the development of new aircraft has led to as far as what you're actually doing as far as you know it's not just mechanical things anymore there's a lot more you know software programming into it and there's a lot more you know complexity being introduced into the aircraft and and how much does that affect things and and we both came to an indeterminate conclusion and i think it would be something to talk over in in a future episode and maybe talk to some people who who know a little bit more about what they're talking about as far as what you know how the changes in aircraft development have have gone on over time but we'll leave that one there Good place to leave the whole episode. There you go. This has been episode 63 Boy, has it of ever. Avtalk. 
I am Ian Pechnik here, as always, with Jason Rabinowitz, and thank you for taking the time to listen. Mm-hmm.